0: And at the time, I just started out. So I thought, okay, I have to do another portrait of like an American or something like that. (laughs) So it's more relevant to the crowd there. And yeah, I think that was when my parents realized that, oh my gosh, this fun side project is actually happening. It's real. And I think it freaked them out. And then in the end, we decided that mom and dad should go over for the conference too. So they came with me and that was when they realized that, oh my daughter is not that crazy
1: after all there's a room filled with crazies here hey everyone so glad to have you here and welcome to episode two of the so this is my why podcast i'm your host and producer ling yao and you just heard a snippet of today's guest red hongi a chinese malaysian contemporary artist otherwise known as red the artist who paints without a paintbrush an architect by training Hongying was working in Shanghai when she did a portrait of the Chinese NBA player Yao Ming with red paint using a basketball. Soon after, the video went viral on YouTube, Gizmodo.com, and even NBA picked it up, and she soon found herself inundated with newspapers, magazines, and websites from all over the world clamouring to interview her. She has since done a wide variety of art pieces, including a portrait of the Te Direct Man, a man who does Pulti, Malaysia, for the World Economic Forum in Davos using 20,000 tea bags, and with Hollywood action superstar Jackie Chan using 64,000 bamboo chopsticks tied together. This is her story of how she grew up in Sabah, Malaysia, the steps she took to build her life up as a full-time artist and the impact that COVID-19 has had on her in recent times. I think you enjoy it. Are you ready? Let's go.
0: Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people
1: about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. Hi, Hong I'm glad to have you with me today. Hey, Ling Ya. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. So I think a lot of people know who you are. You are an architect by training, but you have spent the past eight years pursuing a rather unconventional career as an artist who paints without paintbrush. So I thought before we jump into all the exciting things you're doing now, could you give us an idea of what you were like when you were young and growing up in Sabah?
0: Oh, the first thought is I was quite a tomboy. I was always out Just chasing ducks and chickens and pigeons and picking insects from leaves and climbing trees and catching tadpoles. So I was quite outdoorsy and very curious. I think growing up in Sabah and detached from the capital city, I've always felt like, oh, all the actions in KL, all the art competitions, when is someone going to actually pay attention to what
1: I'm doing here? And you said art competitions. So did you do art when you were really young? Yeah, I think I've always been interested in art. And
0: I think most kids are interested in painting and coloring and things like that. But I think since I was in kindergarten, I do remember getting praised by teachers and my parents. Like they would go, oh, wow, Like this coloring page is done really well. And I think maybe it was that boost of confidence that really made me go, okay, maybe I'm good at this. So I think that was what really made me go, oh, maybe I can sp- spend more time doing this. So I did find that whole comfort and um, security in that kind of identity of being able to draw better I don't know, I think about that a lot and I go, oh, if I was that age and someone said I was good at running or something like that, would that actually make me want to commit more to that? It makes me think a lot about that.
1: But I think you also took it a step further because you not only started drawing things like Sesame Street, but you also started drawing comic strips and selling it to your friends.
0: I did that with a group of friends and I still remember who they are. It was a group of like five of us actually. And after school, we'd like have like a little like meeting and go, okay, this is your magazine, this is my magazine, we have to have competitions, we have to have fun facts and things like that. We have to rent it out for 10 cents each. And then we're going to try to get more people reading it by having competitions. And this is the amount of pocket money that we're going to put aside, right? So... Back then, like it, it didn't feel like a business thing. It was more like we wanted eyeballs to look at whatever news we were trying to spread in, in our exercise books. <laughs> so that was really cute and endearing. I think that was like the early form of blogging, but in an exercise book. And do you get the eyeballs? So we had like 50 kids in a class. I would say... You sold to all of them? No, no, no. It was one exercise book. You read it for the first hour and then you're done. And then you're the second person in line. So we had the whole list of who was going to rent it. Every week we updated it. So it's like, oh, update, you know, just continue reading it. So it would get more and
1: more filled up. Do you remember how much you were making at the
0: time? Ten cents. Each time you read it, we didn't really make a lot. I think I was not as capitalistic. It was more like, oh, it's so nice to receive some money. There was no real goal. I wish someone had coached me, though. But I felt so bad. Our teachers confiscated it after a year. I remember someone reported us that we were making money <laughs> in class.
1: <laughs> and then, actually, I remember who
0: reported us.
1: And then, um, <laughs> oh no, that person is blacklisted for life.
0: My gosh. Um, and then, like, the teacher came in and she was like, "I heard that there are these magazines going around in class. You guys have to stop this." You're going into your primary six. We're having like our UPSR, right? Major exams. No more distractions. Don't distract your classmates. So we stopped. We did this in primary four and five.
1: So primary four and five, for those who don't know, is when you were 10 to 11 years old. And did your parents know about this?
0: I'm sure they know. Yeah, they mentioned about it. I think I would still have these books somewhere in my storeroom or something.
1: They gave it back to you in
0: the end. Yeah, they did. Or we didn't bring it back to school or something like that. I have only fond memories of it. It came from such a pure place.
1: <laughs> so your dad is an engineer and your mom was a banker. But now she is baking a storm online as chomp mom, cooking everything from artisan bread to purple sweet potato manta. So do you see yourself in them? Oh, I think,
0: yeah. I mean, they've influenced me in so many ways, for sure. I think um, if I had to attribute any of my success to anyone, it would be my mom and dad, even though when I started going into art full-time, they all, they, oh, they cried. <laughs> Dad's always been very like structural, very technical, very practical. One of my earliest memories of him trying to train the way me and my brothers thought through things was he sat me and my brother down and he had a can of Coke and two glass bottles. One was really thin, like a test tube. And the other one was kind of wide and fat and short. And he he would pour the coke into both. And he asked me, being the eldest one, which one do you want? Right? And I was like, oh, of course the test you one. That's more. There's more in there. And he was like, okay, Ming. Then you get like that one because your sister wants the 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 better one. And he would pour it both into an equal size mug. And I realized that I had the one with less coke. So he'd go, yeah, so um, like perception, right? And selfishness and things like that. All these themes came out. I was like, dang, dad. So he's the type that's always very practical and very technical. Whereas my mom was the creative one, always trying out new things, giving us all sorts of cakes and breads and things like that. And then she was the one who taught me about Picasso and Bengal. So there was a bit of both.
1: And I heard that Picasso is one of the people that you look up to.
0: I really love his art. I wouldn't have liked him as a personal kind of person. He's gone through so many women. Oh my gosh. (laughs) He's used them as his muse and it's, I mean, he's really expressed it through his art. And it's really impacted the way I hope to express myself through my art too.
1: You never wanted to do art as you were growing up. I understand you wanted to work at Pixar at one point. But then you end up doing architecture.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've always loved art, but always thought of it as not a very practical thing to do. So I thought architecture would be good because it's a mix of technical and creative. I remember before flying over to Australia for university, I set my parents down and I said, I really want to be an artist. I want to be an animator. You know, that's my dream. They're like, no, 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 no. Just get your degree first and then figure out what you want to do. And I think I thought that after I got my architecture degree, that would be it. Because I was pretty happy doing architecture until I started making art on the side and was discovered for it. That made me rethink
1: things again. What was the thought process behind you deciding to graduate from Melbourne University in 2010 and then moving to Shanghai? Um, So I graduated,
0: I think, December in Melbourne, 2010, and started applying for jobs Hardly any jobs came out of, of Australia. I think I, I really wanted to stay back in Australia at the time. and But the economy was not doing well. Construction industry was slowing down. Asia was rising really quickly. I think I sent out like 200 CVs. Over time, I had like maybe 20 replies. 10 of them were like, oh, we like your stuff, but we don't have who will, will follow you under whatever. They never got back to me. But um, the other 10 were mostly from Singapore, Malaysia, and China and Hong Kong. And I decided to go with Hassel, the, the firm that I eventually worked for, because they're an Australian company. And I thought, okay, maybe after a year, I can get transferred back to Australia. That was the kind of like the secret plan. So I never saw myself staying on in Shanghai for more than a year. But I ended up staying for like three and a half, four years. And I wanted to stay longer. I I really, really enjoyed my time there. And I think Shanghai was a bit of like a bouncing board for me to venture out into other things too. So what was it like when you first moved to Shanghai? I, (laughs) I think my heart will always be like a part of it will always be there because, well, firstly, my grandparents are from Shanghai. So I do have relatives there. I reconnected with them. I lived in one of their super old houses that, like my ceiling was falling off and things like that. It was just really meaningful to live with three 90-plus-year-old folks. And there was no proper heating in winter. There was no cooling system in summer. But it was interesting to see the way they lived. And I think Shanghai, especially at that time, was going through such a mix of contrasts. There were high-rises coming up really quickly, and then there were all these old compounds that were being bulldozed. It just felt like there was constant stimulation every time I stepped out of my house. There would be people like spitting on the streets, chickens being like killed on the roadside and then being sold on the roadside. It was just like a makeshift market in front of my house. And then I would go into this really nice like five, six star hotel to like check out their designs and all that. On Sundays, I needed this whole meditation yoga session to calm down. But it was exciting. It was so interesting to see how China was doing things very differently from the outside. Before moving to China, a lot of family friends were like, Oh, be careful. You're going to be manipulated there. They're very cunning. But when I was there, I learned that it's also a perspective shift. And when you know the local culture and the locals, you understand their perspective too. So Shanghai is a city of 25 million people packed into a city living there. And, I, and um, the first time I, I tried to catch a bus to go to work, I got pushed out. So I thought, oh, dude, it's like survival of the fittest here. So you kind of understand where they're coming from. They're, they're sweet people, but it's—I think—they're like situations that have push people to do things differently too.
1: And were people always very entrepreneurial and venture into new things as well?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, I think it's just in the blood. All right. So when I started working full time, I had left and right local Chinese architects working with me. And okay, this is a little bit personal, but before I left. Australia, there was this guy who gave me this laser cut ring and it had Godzilla invading a whole city. It was really cute. And I showed my colleague on my left. I was like, look at this ring. Isn't it cute? And he was like, do you have the cat files? Let's laser cut this and sell it. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. I'm like horrified. What was his first reaction? So I think over there, I felt that people were very driven to find business opportunities. There were all sorts of experiments, all sorts of things.
1: And I think that kind of also influences you as well, because at one point you also thought of doing some kind of e-commerce venture.
0: Yeah, yeah. This doesn't sound as special right now, but at the time when I moved over... So every day after work, I used to take the subway back home. On these pillars in the subway station, it would be just posters of groceries. And you could just wear a code, scan it, and then it would be sent to your house. So basically... They were trying to bring a supermarket into a a subway station for people who didn't want to go to the supermarket after work. So I felt that, oh my gosh, it's so clever. It's so smart. I've never seen this happen before. So I started Googling around Alibaba and things like that and discovered that there was this city called Yiwu that's totally dedicated to manufacturing samples. So you can find anything like a mug or like a cap or a jar or anything in that city. It's just built for supplies and manufacturing. So a friend and I traveled there and then we're like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. This is so mad. This is where everything is made. And then for some reason, we, we wanted to sell bicycle parts. And um, he was also a friend that shot my Yao Ming video. So as we were discussing this bicycle e-commerce thing, I was doing art on the side just for fun. And then he would, he offered to shoot a time-lapse video of my Yao Ming thing and put it up online. And then that kind of got spread around. And then that e-commerce thing kind of fell to the
1: sidelines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that trick proved to be really important because if you didn't have him, you wouldn't have the video.
0: Yeah, yeah. So thank you, Joel. Joel is a really, really good friend. He actually was the one who named me Red. So he kind of jokes around that he gave birth to me.
1: <laughs> That's hilarious because Red actually comes from your surname, Hong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how, how did he actually come about, though, this nickname Red?
0: He's a friend from Australia. He's funny. He gives a lot of friends nicknames. So I remember one night when we went out together with a group of friends who were introduced to our group. He was like, oh, this is so-and-so, this is so-and-so. And he pointed at me, this is Red.
1: I thought that was funny. So
0: it stuck from then on. <laughs>
1: And did you end up buying anything from that trip to Yiwu? Uh,
0: I don't think we did. I think we collected a couple of samples. We looked at random things. But to be able to buy, there's a minimum order quantity. So we didn't end up doing that. We were totally naive looking at all these things. We're like, oh my gosh, we can sell this. We can sell this. This would be it. People would buy this not knowing about branding, marketing, and all that kind of thing behind it.
1: So this was 2011, 2012. It's your second year in Shanghai. And you, as you mentioned before, you were kind of doing art on the side and you were doing this portrait of Ai Weiwei using sunflower seeds. And people didn't really notice that until you did the Yao Ming video, which was launched in January 2012. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us the whole thought process behind doing that video of Yao Ming?
0: Yeah. So the Ai Weiwei piece was done... Right outside the house that I was living in with my grand uncles and aunties. And my grand uncle actually shot that from the third floor down. I gave him my DSLR. I was like, it's on auto. Just click, click. And um, <laughs> so you can't go wrong. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, I started out with really basic materials and skills. <laughs> and then Joel came to visit Shanghai. He, he just quit his job. And this was December, it was looking for inspiration. And I I kind of like tried to get him on board on this whole e-commerce thing. And he shoots wedding videos on the side. So I was like, oh, I'm doing the second portrait. And it's this yelling portrait. And he was like, oh, maybe I can take a video of it. And it was done in time-lapse and we put it up online.
1: How long did it take you to do that thing?
0: It was really quick because I think there was no expectations behind it. And it was just my friends and parents
1: watching it. Do you have like a trial run before that?
0: I did. It didn't work when I did it in front of my house because I think the wind was blowing too hard. And um, so I did it the second time right behind Hassel, the office. And um, I think it was like just more secluded. So it was easier to do that. And it was on a Saturday no one was there. It was about three hours, that video. And then I think the upload was about two or three minutes. And then two weeks later, I found out that gizmodo.com posted it online and then from gizmodo it went to all other kind of news channels and like today when i think about it i go oh my god that's crazy it wouldn't happen today even if i did the same video i think maybe it was a novelty thing to see a time lapse of someone creating with a random tool but now i uh, the whole instagram artist circle is quite saturated there's a lot of these things now but back then it was probably like a new thing so it got spread around quite a bit
1: yeah, even MBA picked it up as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was pretty crazy. They were discussing about things like my dribbling skills and all that kind of thing. And they're like, why does she have no paint on her clothes and all that? Are these like editing skills? So it was interesting to read through all of those comments.
1: So what was your feeling like seeing all these like comments be up, these likes be up? They went into the tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands. Yeah,
0: yeah, it did. Oh, I'm getting recognized for it. But there was also a little bit of anxiety because I was like, oh, what's next? Is this going to be like one wonder thing? What if I cannot produce anything after this? And then also I felt like, oh, I'm not a real artist. Why am I labeled as an artist? That artist label was so foreign to me. Yeah, so it was a combo of excitement and anxiety that I felt.
1: So you had these questions, these doubts, but then you still continue on to your second art and then your third and your fourth. How do you overcome those doubts? think I just continued doing it a friend told me because
0: I was telling a friend about it I was like oh I'm so scared and he was like just fake it till you make it I was like okay I guess so <laughs> and then I just continued so it's been a steep learning curve for me I mean I've had to like really bang my head on the wall a couple of times getting into like you know mistakes and things like that but I've met really amazing people throughout my journey who've helped me um, get to the next step as well. So it's been, it's, been, it's been quite an incredible journey.
1: So your next few portraits were of J. Chao, Zhang Zimou. Tell us how you came to decide on who to do a portrait on.
0: At the time, the inspiration really started from me wanting to tell stories about China and about people there who were highlighted in the media a lot. I felt that China was, I mean, it has a lot of its own flaws in terms of how things are Manage sometimes. But at the same time, I felt like it was such a misunderstood country as well. And I felt that a lot of these stories need to be told. I thought it'd be easiest to highlight just personalities there through materials that spoke about their careers or their lives. So I wanted a person from each in a different industry. So I started with an artist, then an athlete to singer, Jay Chow, and then to a filmmaker. And I wanted to continue that kind of theme. And yeah, that was how I chose my characters. I think it really thrilled me when someone from Norway, for example, went, oh, i never heard
1: of Jay Chow.
0: And I'm like, are you serious? We grew up with him here. So um, yeah, that, that really thrilled me.
1: So were you getting more and more viewers coming on board and seeing your work Was there growing interest and more media coming towards you?
0: Yeah, yeah. I had like a small following at the start, like during the Yao Ming thing. I, I I set up a Facebook page after that and then it built up from there. And it's been really fun connecting with people all over the world.
1: And it led you to the EG conference, which happened in the same year in April.
0: That was so quick. So the the person who reached out to me, his name is Michael Holly. He's like a dear friend and a mentor almost to me. He's the guy behind EG, and when he emailed me, I thought, no way, is this a scam? Is this a hoax? And I, like, Googled him. I was like, no kidding. Professor MIT has done a bunch of things. He's brilliant. He's worked with um, Steve Jobs on Next and all that kind of thing. And I thought, no, this is not real. And we jumped on a call. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is real. He took a leap of faith and invited me to go over to the States to speak about my art in May. And at the time, I just started out. So I thought, okay, I have to do another portrait of like an American or something like that. (laughs) So it's more relevant to the crowd there. And I chose Mark Zuckerberg. And yeah, I think that was when my parents realized that, oh my gosh, this fun side project is actually happening. It's real. And I think it freaked them out. So it flew over right before the conference and um, they're like, are you sure what's going to happen and all that kind of thing? And then in the end, we decided that mom and dad should go over for the conference too. So they came with me and that was when they realized that, oh, my daughter is not that crazy after all. There's a room filled with crazies here. <laughs> <laughs> Who are also
1: successful.
0: They're doing all sorts of different things. So I, what I love about Mike is he puts equal importance and respect in the sciences and the arts. So he had amazing scientists discovering like incredible things to to musicians, to artists, to astronauts, to, to chefs, to everything. And that really just opened up our eyes and made us go, wow, you know, the world is that much bigger. It's not just confined to whatever you study.
1: Because the EG conference is actually quite a big deal. It was something of a turning point for you, wasn't it?
0: It was. It really was. It, meeting all sorts of people and having all that conversation with them, they expanded my mind a lot. And after that, my parents were like, okay, I think you know what you're doing. I, and we trust you. We have to. We have to trust this. Because they met all these people who trusted what I was doing. So that was really something that changed my life quite a bit. And I have to thank people like Mike who actually believed in what I was doing.
1: And you were still working as an architect at the time and doing art on the site. Soon after, you had a conversation with your boss?
0: Yeah. So, after EG, I had uh, a couple of commission requests coming in, and two were particularly big. The bigger one was Hewlett Packard. And um, they wanted me to be a part of this thirty-second um, TV commercial that was going to be aired in four different countries, including China. And, and I thought, oh wow, like maybe I should give this a shot. So I did that on the side while I was working with Hassel. Did that during the weekends and had friends coming in to help me like put things together. And then after it was shot, uh, my my boss had a chat with me. So I thought, oh my gosh, like this is when he's like, this is not cool. This is not cool that you're like focusing on something else. (laughs) But to my surprise, he was super encouraging. He said, so I know you're getting all these like requests. Have you thought about going into it full time? And I thought, oh no, you're gonna like, Peter, you're gonna like fire me, right? And he was like, no, no, you shouldn't really think about this. Because if you were my daughter, I would actually really think that you should give this a go because you never know where it might bring you. And if you're worried about finances and all that, you can come back after six months, like 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 hassle's still here. And he gave me that safety net. And then I was like, oh my gosh, first of all, this boss is amazing. It's rare to have someone like that. And also he's given me a safety net. I have no excuse to not venture out and give this a shot. And then the first day when I quit, I sat in a cafe and I was so lost. I was like, where are my colleagues? Where's the project manager? What's going to happen? What is next? So yeah, so that was day one for me.
1: Oh, wow. And I imagine you must have had to break the news to your parents. Yeah. And how was that conversation?
0: Okay, I think my dad came to the Hewlett package shoot with me. He was the person who went through like my contracts and all that. I had a friend who was managing it, but he was also helping me just taking care of the whole thing. They gave me an offer that was more than my salary that year. And I thought, you know, I was a little bit smug, I'll be fine, Like getting paid so much. And then he was like, have you thought about taxes? Have you thought about, now you're your boss, you have to pay for all these expenses, whoever you hire is all on you now, your branding, your marketing, all that kind of thing. I was like, huh? So how much is that? He was like, you better put it all in your company and then use that gradually. Don't go out and feel like you own the world now. And I was like, what do you mean by putting it in my company? I had no idea on company accounts and personal accounts and things like that. So you really sat with me through all that. And that was when I realized that, oh, whoa, okay. You have to be paid a certain amount to keep this afloat. So um, that was my, my foray into
1: business. Do you even think perhaps this might not work, that after HP there might be not be anything else and you would go back? Do you give yourself a deadline?
0: Yeah, I gave myself six months. I, I did have six months of savings at least to, to figure this out. I was grateful that I did have a steady stream of projects coming in. But I think at the time, if I had to advise my younger self, then I had all sorts of different projects coming in. And it was kind of confusing to choose what to take and what not to take. And that would really set what kind of projects I would have next. There were all sorts of of things like, oh, do you want to make, say, a Coca-Cola installation out of Coca-Cola cans? And then there would be a gallery coming up to me going, oh, do you want to have an exhibition doing this? And then there would be a skincare company going, oh, do you want to come in and do our packaging? So it's like totally different directions. And at the time, I was like, oh, just take, 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 take. And I think that really confused my directions for a bit. So I had to take a step back and go, okay, I shouldn't be doing this, this, this. Because I think once your focus is diluted, your clients don't really know which direction you're heading towards too. So I had to be a little
1: bit more strategic than that. So how did you come to that decision on what your focus would be? And was that when you decided you wanted to be known as an artist who paints without a paintbrush? I think, um, I
0: mean, it's, it's taken many years, I guess. It's taken me many years. Eventually, it came down to, it has to be projects that I'm excited about, that like the companies that I choose to work with, their values have to align with mine. And occasionally I get companies requesting me to do stuff and I go, oh, do I come in as the artist or the designer that designs for you? I have to make it very clear that I'm the artist here who is collaborating with you I'm not here to make a product for you. So it comes from a very different place.
1: And I think that your tendency to use common day, everyday objects was quite evident from the start. You did one which is quite well known for the WEF at Davos in 2014 of the Tatarik Men. And that was a really, really massive project. I mean, you, you had 200 kg worth of tea bags. I can't imagine that you could have done this alone. So how did you even go about conceptualizing this and bringing that team together? After Shanghai, I went back
0: to Australia because I have my permanent residency that I had to fulfill. So I was in Australia and then I had that um, commission come in and I was like, oh, I really, really wanted to go for it. So I was like, it has to be like a piece that I would be proud of. And I wanted it to be reflective of something really Malaysian and cultural, but not to cliche like the twin towers for example so i chose a teotaric man because i thought it would be a humble scene that i could share with people and i really wanted people to be able to experience that smell of teotaric in davos i designed everything with a couple of friends and then we figured out that we needed twenty thousand tea bags to do this and i had the month to create it and i thought no way i'm not going to be able to do this by myself So this is December and a lot of students were on holiday. And um, so I put a call out to get students in to help me tie these things together. So about 20 people came in to help me with it. And that was how it was done. Looked for a carpenter to get all the frame done and then shipped it to Switzerland. The the shipping part was a bit of a roller coaster for us because we had a really short timeline of shipping it out and then flying to Switzerland and then receiving it. But when I got to Switzerland, it wasn't there yet. And I was like, freak out. Oh my gosh, Davos is happening in three days. What do we do? And then we find out that it went to New York for some reason. And then like, why did it go to New York? And they were like, oh, we just had to like do a detour. And they had to really check and make sure each tea bag had no substance. And I was like, dude, no way, there's 20,000 of them to go through. So it was constant calling, 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 just trying to push them and coming up with official documents from Davos saying that it's, it's going to be displayed there and all that. So eventually it arrived like, after constant hassling
1: for three days. <laughs> that was nerve wracking.
0: Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, oh my gosh, if it missed those three days of Davos, I would die.
1: I imagine one of the f- questions people always want to know is how do you come up with all these creative ideas? It's always something that's different, but it's always in a way related to the person or the thing that you're portraying. So how do you even come up with that and the, the process? Yeah, behind
0: it? I, it comes up either from the person or the subject or, or I research on the material. So I think if it starts with the person, I, I start like a research on person's background and what they've done with their lives and usually the thing would pop up and I would probably delve into that thing so if it was for example let's say Aung San Suu, Kyi. Oh, Aung San Suu Kyi, yeah yeah that's a really good one so so I th- this is before the whole Rohingya thing right so growing up I was very very inspired by her story and her love for a country I started reading up a lot about her and watching her movies and things like that, the one with Michelle Yeoh in it. And then I noticed that she always had a very elegant, beautiful flowers. And then upon more research, I learned that it was a symbol for her dad and how he used to tie fresh flowers in her hair as a kid. So I started researching flowers. That's how it comes about if it's doing a person's portrait. But I do have materials on the side, like say chopsticks, for example, and I go kind of figure out how they can be arranged differently. So it's, it's usually this or that. And sometimes I
1: kind of draw a line and like merge them together. I love that you brought up chopsticks because your most famous one is the one that you did with Jackie Chan. Can you tell us about that? Because it just looks like you really needed a, need a team as well because you needed so many chopsticks yeah. to tie all together and hang it up just to do a portrait of Jackie Chan. So can you explain to us what that was like?
0: Yeah, that was the very first project where I had a team doing that with me. This was, I think, a year after quitting Hassle. So my friend, Aggie, who used to work for Hassle as well, quit Hassle to join me. I think she was figuring out what to do. And uh, no, she was probably still with Hassle at that point. And um, so she... Also- Peter's probably regretting.
1: Oh, no! <laughs> Is that, no, she have never said yes. <laughs> Losing my employees one by one. Oh my gosh. No, no, no. Okay, no, no.
0: It started like this, right? After I quit, Aggie joined because she read about me in Hassle, working for Hassle. And when she joined Hassle, she was like, Where is this red character? And everyone was like, She quit. (laughs) But I had a great relationship with Hassle. So I came in every month or so to say hi to Colleen. I still had my my table there, it was kind of still empty. So I used to hang out there after work sometimes. And Aggie would come over and she's like, you're red and you quit. And I'm here now. I read about you, you know? So that was how our friendship started. And I think eventually I had these commissions from Chinese clients and I needed help with contracts and things like that. And she's very good with words. So she helped me out with a couple of contracts. And then when the Jackie Chan thing came about, I was like, oh my gosh, Aggie, Jackie Chan's guys actually contacted me. So we flew to Beijing together, and then she was she was my manager, like immediately promoted manager. <laughs> and then um, I mean, I needed to, to to keep that image, right? And then um, I think I was so intimidated when this happened. I was like, oh my gosh, what is this thing, right? And um, also very flattered because Jackie said that he saw my J-chow piece Online, And he read about me in my Zang Yimou piece somewhere, right. and that was when he realized it was the same person. And he was turning 60 that year, and I think his team wanted to commission a piece for him. So that was how it happened. And after our meeting, we walked around Beijing and saw a lot of people throwing bamboo chopsticks by the roadside after going for like hot pot and things like that. And we're like, maybe we should look into chopsticks. It's such a disposable thing here. And Jackie was all about sustainability and all that kind of thing. So we started watching his earlier movies, and there was this scene in Drunken Master where he chopstick fights with his master, and that inspired the scene in that video that I posted with him. So that was how it started, and then similar to the teabag piece, I had one month of concept, one month of creating the piece. So Aggie suggested that she and I travel down to the south of China to a village where she's from that's like filled with bamboos around. And there were factories making all these like bamboo chopsticks. So she was like, this is the place to be. Everyone knows how to work with bamboo. You can work with the village that my mom lives in. There's 20, 30 aunties that have nothing to do after they send their kids to work. And if you pay them, I'm sure they would love to tie chopsticks for you. <laughs> and that was what we did for two weeks straight. It was it was awesome. I really wish I documented the whole thing. I really wish I took videos and all that. It was freezing Every day we had our own fireplace and then we collected our own firewood and we'd be tying chopsticks. It was pretty amazing. And that was how it was done. And then we shipped it back to Beijing and then presented it to him.
1: And I've noticed that a particular theme in your projects is that it's temporary installations. They're very large, but they're temporary rather than permanent. What happens to them after that? Mm. I mean, what do you do with the 20,000 tea bags or all these chopsticks? Oh
0: yeah, the chopsticks are more permanent because they are treated bamboo chopsticks. The tea bags, probably less so, although we did seal them as well. The food ones for sure are not permanent. So I do document them through photography. But I think after the Jackie piece, when I had commissions come in, I had to think about durability because I'd realized that, oh, they don't want it just for the photos or videos. They want to actually keep these things for goodness knows how long. So I started to research into more durable materials, also still everyday materials. So it was even things like hair, eggshells and things like that. So there was a lot of research done in how artists from hundreds of years ago have used materials that I've kept till today so I would visit museums and look at see what the Mayans did or what I think like the Qing dynasty people used to do with their vases and things like that and research into those materials that's how I worked around more durable materials
1: and I'd love to talk about how your architectural training influenced what you were doing yeah. how did that come into play and how important was it in you being able to do the kind of work you were doing
0: yeah, I think that's been a learning process for me too because I came from a very design kind of background. It was problem-solving. Give me a site, tell me how big the site is, what your client's requirements are, and the boundaries and all that, limitations are. So that was what my thought process was. But more and more, I think as I'm in art a little bit longer, it is also about the emotions that you want to create like, and, and share with um, people. It's a lot about emotions and expressions and it doesn't have to be one plus one equals two. Trying to like bridge those two together and even think less like a designer. But that design part will always be with me. I think that's why I go, okay, I need like 20,000 of this. I need to model this up in 3D space and make sure it works. So a lot of my pieces are planned on the computer first and then I go, yep, yeah, I can make them. And then
1: I'll start buying all these parts and start making them. So what's been the most challenging part of executing a project for you?
0: Oh, I think the most challenging part is the doubts of whether it can happen or not. I always doubt whether my art is impactful enough, if it's meaningful enough. I think over time I've had to tell myself that, you know, if it's good enough, it's good enough. It doesn't have to be perfect. And sometimes the more perfect it is, the less interesting it is, the more boring. I think it's that whole getting over perfectionism thing.
1: I love that you brought up doubt because you said in a TEDx talk in KL that when you decide to go full-time, you decide to leave doubt behind. But I can't imagine that was a straightforward or easy process. How did you handle it?
0: I had to realize that I was running a small business. And I think as with any like business owner, there's always going to be doubts about what you're doing and if you're driving your shit well. Because... Like oh my gosh! Like where is my boss and where are all these people that are supposed to like be my pillars? Right, you're your own boss right now. So there was a lot of doubts if I was doing things right. But I've learned to manage the doubts and kind of dance with doubts. It's, it's always going to be there, but but I'm comfortable with it now.
1: Were you ever tempted to go back? Hmm, no,
0: I mean I think a lot about wanting to design and build an actual physical building. I still want to do that, um, but I've not thought about uh, working for a company after I quit. Not because I didn't like it, but because I, I really enjoy what I'm doing and I enjoy the autonomy behind it. And I think it fits my personality too. So I've had a couple of friends. At the time, I was all like, you know, ah, oh, everyone should do this. So I had a couple of friends who decided to give their passions a go time too. And then that was when I realized that it doesn't fit everyone's personality. And that's all right too. There's no shame in realizing that it doesn't suit your lifestyle because working for a firm has its awesome perks too. You don't have to think about renting a space. You don't have to think about a lot of things. And that that's okay. Whereas I have to think about all those kind of other things that comes with running my own thing. So it really is about What fits your personality and lifestyle?
1: So, what was it about your personality that drew you to this and made you realize I couldn't ever go back?
0: I think I am someone who likes doing things a bit differently. I I really like being creative and experimenting, and I see my life as a whole series of projects that I want to work on. I do have a little bit more of an appetite now for risk, a little bit more. And yeah, I, I think I, I just like putting things out there and seeing what happens with the either the products or the artworks that I do.
1: If you had no limit on resources, is there a particular project you really want to do but you haven't managed to do yet?
0: I think there's always projects that I want to work on. But at the same time, I feel like my most creative moments come from limitations and boundaries and a place of, scarcity because when desperation comes, I feel like my most creative ideas come about at the same time. So I think I was able to work on all these projects when I was working for Hassle because I had Hassle full-time and on the side on the weekends, I just really wanted to carve out that time to make things. It was like a desperate thing for me to do. But I think the first year out of Hassle, I had all the time in the world to do whatever I wanted to do. That was the year when I was the least productive that first year because I was like, oh, it has to be so perfect. I have to be- max this out. And I think the more expectations I had of myself, the less I created. So I've also learned to to set boundaries and to not go too crazy with expectations
1: as well. So how do you think it through? Because you can't be perfectionist all the time, but at the same time, you can't give subpar work. Yeah. So where is that line? How do you draw it?
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I think for me, I have to remind myself, it's okay to start small. It's always a work in progress. Start small, it's almost like prototyping a product. So I think an example was with the reason I'm not a virus project that I did. but really started off with me talking to a couple of friends in the States and they were like, oh, you know, it's such a bad time to be Asian right now. You don't know if, you know, you're going to be judged because of your ethnicity. So I think when I heard that, I thought, oh, okay, maybe I'll just make a piece that expresses this with whatever I can find in my pantry. So I dug around and found expired matcha leaves and then created a portrait of myself with a mask saying I am not a virus. That's it. That started from there. And then I started to get like pretty fast responses and comments about it. It was more reaction than I thought I'd get. And I thought, okay, um, maybe I should turn this into a series and really look into it a little bit more. And then I started reading up all these articles about victims of assaults happening. And then I thought, okay, maybe I should document this. Just turn it into a series of 10 so that there is ongoing conversation. It's not just a one-off. And then it turned into a series of different people's portraits that I was profiling. After the whole thing, I started to get more and more interviews and requests on this. And then Teen Vogue contacted me to do a series because it was it's the Asian Pacific Heritage Month in America. And then post-Malaysia, I'm doing something with them. They want a series of steps of frontliners with like masks on. So that's going to happen soon. And then a couple of other requests. And then eventually that turned into my bigger weaved bamboo piece. That was, you know, just a series of seven portraits of people that was featured. I used the blow charge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think this, this was a good reminder for me that things can start small. It's okay to start small. But I think with a bigger piece that I d- delivered, you know, I wanted it to be good, but not perfect. So that's an example of starting small and then turning it into something bigger.
1: Yeah. And you started with that whole I'm not a virus series. And then you continued on to Seats of Hope and just went on and on. And before that, you actually did this piece with Kenji, which was called Burn. And it was Some might call it a political piece. It was all about like an orangutan framed by these branches and you just set it on fire. And it's the message that, you know, if you don't do something now, you can never get the the world back. So it seems like you are adopting a more purposeful approach to art. And I'm wondering if that is a recent occurrence and why that came about.
0: Yeah, I think at the same time, while I was doing all these pieces with interesting materials, I felt that I wanted something deeper than that. It wasn't just the aesthetics that I'm after. It has to be a message. And I go back to emotions, like what art can do more than numbers or data can do is it really can impact a person emotionally. So I thought that's that's where the power of art comes from. And at the time when Kendi and I were creating that piece, you know, the Amazon forests were on fire and and then it, the Bornean forests were on fire too. So we thought that was timely. And then we created that piece. And this year, I think I just told myself that I wanted to create pieces to spread messages. Like I want to stand for something. And, um, and more and more, I feel this want to, to share about my heritage and culture and race and gender more. So these things are on my mind a bit more this year and I wanted to express that.
1: And do you think that all artists should eventually have a purpose behind their art rather than just for aesthetics?
0: No, I think it really is up to the artist. Art is such a personal thing. I spoke to a friend recently about this and she was like, oh, but like, I like what you're doing, but I, I don't want to talk about these things. I, I just want to make pretty things. And that's totally fine. That's totally fine. I think it, it, there's room for all sorts of art.
1: And do you not feel fearful because these can be quite controversial, and even sensitive things, and you will invoke a lot of perhaps negative reaction that you would not normally get with just something that's pretty.
0: Yeah. I, I did get a couple of comments that went, oh, you know, we like your art, but now you're doing this and, um, I disagree with what you're doing and all that kind of, thing. yeah. So I do that, get those comments. But at the same time, I, I feel like you cannot please everyone too. And if you do, then what do you stand for as well? And it just dilutes everything you do. So I think it's important to know what you want to stand for as well. And I'm okay with speaking up about certain topics.
1: And there's one other topic we haven't covered yet, but I wanted to raise because it's quite important. And it's the issue of finances. I mean, like when you were starting out before you quit, you were doing these large scale things but you were buying everything in bulk so how were you funding yourself and how were you funding yourself after you could and you didn't have that cushion to fall on so
0: all my pieces i i had to learn that when a client contacts me i would hold back on the budget a little bit and go let me get back to you okay i make it very sure about what the client wants this dimension this timeline and this concept and once that's set I have a clearer understanding of how much money is involved in it. If they wanted 20,000 tea bags, I'm going to have to like figure out a way to get 20,000 tea bags, and that's going to have to be included in my fee proposal. So I do
1: include that now. And uh, it's a lot easier when that happens. How do you even come up with how much to charge your clients though?
0: That's tricky. It's been a learning progress, I guess. <laughs> There's a couple of ways around that. I think it depends on... A lot of things. So what kind of client is it? Is it a client that is after a couple of images like Team Vogue on the magazine as opposed to a TV commercial for Hewlett Packard? That's a total different budget that they have. So I, I do understand that there's a range and there's a different kind of need to it. And I guess I have to work on how much time I'm going to spend on it. If it's one whole month full time, then I kind of have a gauge on oh, this is the amount of hours I have and multiply that by how much I should be paid per hour. That's a very straightforward way of working on it. And then the expenses and then the labor and all that. So that is the minimum amount that I have to charge.
1: And how do people, for those who are just starting out, how do they even know how much to charge and what they are worth per hour, for instance?
0: Think about how much time you're going to spend on it. That That's just one way to go about it. How much time you're going to spend on it and what materials, what expenses are involved. And then once you have that, I guess that's a starting point for you. But of course, with art, when it comes to commissioning art, you have 1 million versus 100 bucks. It's very hard to put a price tag on art. But when you're starting out, you can go the whole route of how much time I'm going to spend on this and maybe even think about how often you're going to get projects. You might have to charge a little bit more if you want to sustain your practice for the next project that might come in.
1: And how do you balance between taking on projects, commissions that pay and your own artistic interests?
0: Yeah, yeah. There are some projects that I take up that do not pay as well, but I know that there are other things that come along with it. So it could be, say, values or certain campaigns that I really believe in, like, or nonprofits and things like that. Um, Sometimes it is the relationship with that particular client that I believe would be good as like a building block so yeah there are certain clients that I've turned down because I don't use those products or I don't align with those kind of values I mean there's nothing wrong with that but it would just bring me into a different kind of market so I think it's good to know which direction you want to head towards and what you want to build to
1: and I think it helps to have friends who are in the field who can kind of share how they are thinking through these things like charging but I mean when you first started you didn't Know anyone in the art field. So, how do you begin to even build your network and have these kind of friends support you on the journey, and understand where you are coming from?
0: Oh, I really had no idea. I did not know anyone who was a full time artist at all. So, it was really through gradual putting yourself out there, people respond to you, like Mike, for example. And then I went to the conference and I knew a bunch of people, including artists. And those artists introduced me to other artists or those scientists or inventors introduced me to their artist friends. So it was really just a gradual build up of connections.
1: Before you started as one person show and now you have a team around you. So how did that happen? When did you decide that this was the time when you need a full-time team around you?
0: They don't work with me full-time, but they are there for me quite a lot. So my model is they are freelancers. They can still work on their own projects because I think that's important for artists. But as with a lot of artists, we don't have full-time work. So I do tell them, hey, I have this project coming up. It's going to be two three months. And uh, would you be able to commit this time for me? So that's how we work. And I, I pay them on a the daily kind of basis. So I go, this is the day rate that I have. Um, and just fill out your timesheet. And then by the end of this
1: project... These other fees for you. So that's worked better for me. At what point did you decide that it was time for you to get a team?
0: So I think it was last year that I worked with this team. But before that, it was more like me going to a factory and hiring laborers to help me do things. But, but I, I realized that I needed artists who knew how to make things to work with me. Two years ago, I worked on this project called, called Pillars of Sabah. It's a community project, and a friend and I, we gathered about 30 artists to come together to revamp this space in the middle of the city. And that was when I got to know local artists. And it's a combination of full-time artists and artists who work for companies nine to five. So I reached out to those artists that were freelance full-time and gave them this offer. And I went, you know, I might need a team sometimes do you want to work with me and they're like yeah sure so that's how it happened
1: amazing and this whole pillars of Sabah came about because you moved back from Shanghai and Melbourne to Sabah
0: I think I felt like I wasn't permanent permanently back here because I felt like Australia was too far for a lot of my clients and a lot of my clients were in Asia so I thought okay maybe being back here with family and being more central was easier than flying out eight hours from Australia and then into Asia so being in Sabah, it was so much easier to fly to Singapore, KL and Hong Kong and all that. But at the same time, I was going back and forth, the US as well. So, so I was flying quite a bit, like in this kind of region. So it didn't feel like I was just in KK.
1: So we talked about you working with teens now and also you having to fly quite a lot. But now we have COVID-19. How has that impacted your work?
0: I, I was just thinking to myself, oh, when was the last time I flew? This is the longest time I've been like sitting on my butt (laughs) at one spot. Um, It's been good for my practice, to be honest, but it has brought a lot of anxiety and questions at the same time. As with all industries, it's like a massive upheaval of what's to come. So I think when the lockdown happened, I went into this whole, oh my gosh, I have to work kind of mode. So that was when I started the Virus series and then Seeds of Hope. And then I worked on a couple of artworks on the side to submit to like a... You had the When
1: This Is Over, I Will as well?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, that too. Good memory. I need mean, to update that site. And then I think a couple of artists from the Pillars group that contacted me and they were like, how are you going? What's happening? And all that, like, we're worried, right? So I still have a couple of ongoing projects and I'm working with them a little bit more. And there is this monthly group. Von Wong is on it. He invited me to be in this monthly gathering of creative minds on Zoom. We talk about it too. We're like, you know, what is going to happen if six months down line this continues? So it is about being flexible to change and rethinking how, I guess, the creative industry is going to be. Everything is moving did, like online digitally right now. So I
1: think we have to be open to possibly shifting a lot of work online even as well. Do you think this shift is permanent for those in the art world? Uh,
0: You know, there's all these
1: (laughs) news articles going,
0: the world's going to change permanently. This is going to be forever changed. I don't know. No one knows, I think, (laughs) at this point. But for sure, I think it's placed more importance on digitalizing everything just in case things like this happen. I think this is the best time to have a pandemic because we have digital tools right now to keep connected. Imagine if this happened, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, right?
1: Do you have any ideas of what your future will be?
0: I, I actually submitted my
1: application to move to the
0: States and try it out for the next at least a couple of years. So that's still going to happen. Um, it's in in progress, but it's of course it's a crazy time there still. And I think other than art, I'm dabbling in other things too that I'm excited about. That's going to, I guess, squeeze my creative juices in other ways. I'm not going to reveal too much yet. But yeah, I'm, I think I'm open to other avenues of how I'm going to use my creativity as well.
1: Thank you so much for your time. I normally end with three quick questions. Ooh. So the first one is, do you feel that you have found your why?
0: Yes. I believe very much so that I found my why when it comes to art because it's always been a dream and I'm very grateful to be able to do this but I also believe that my why's can change with every decade even and I think I'm open to that change too.
1: And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind?
0: That's a big one. That's really big. <laughs> I'm going to use because one of my assistants asked me this a couple of months ago and I told her I stole a quote from Charlie McKessie's thing like
1: who's your favorite artist yeah I love
0: his work she was like oh uh Rick, what what legacy do you want to leave behind one day and I was like to be kind <laughs> and she kind of what? <laughs> I think she was like expecting this whole spiel about what kind of artist I want to like be and all that
1: Brilliant. And what do you think are the most important qualities for someone who wants to succeed like you in your field?
0: Oh, wow. I think you have to be determined, gritty and optimistic and maybe a little bit naive.
1: And where can people go to find you and follow what you're doing?
0: Oh, you can check out my like portfolio on R-E-D-H-O-N-G-Y-I.com. And then go to Instagram and Facebook with the same handle, Hongi, and then you'll find me.
1: Brilliant. And is there anything else you want to share that we haven't covered so far?
0: Not that I can think of. I'm just really grateful to be able
1: to share my journey. And I'm really grateful that you took the time to be here. Thank you so much, Hongi. Thank you as well, Inia. So there you have it. Wasn't that fascinating? You can find the show notes for this episode, including links to Hongi's works and where you can reach her, at so this is mywide.com forward slash episode two. If you've enjoyed this episode and in fact this podcast, I would love it if you could subscribe and even leave a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might be listening to this episode on. I do read every review and would love to know how I can better serve you, the listeners of this podcast. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode, where we meet a boy from Jaya, Malaysia, who grew up to become one of the top graduates of his year in Oxford University, completed his PhD in Cambridge University, before taking a turn in consulting and eventually establishing the digital and esports division at Formula One, which has resulted in virtual Grand prix seeing real-life F1 superstar drivers being pitted against pro gamers, YouTube stars, professional footballers, golfers, and more. Until next time.